Welcome to A Deeper Network. I'm your host brother and this month I'm so excited to bring you a real Detroit original, Mr. Delano Smith. He was part of the first wave of DJs from the late 70s, but he's also one of the most current artists of his time. You might know him for his music on Mix Mode and Sushi Tech. I've had a great time talking to him, so let's just get right into it. One thing that uh, I always thought was special about you, Delano, is that you're um, one of the first DJs from the first wave of DJs from Detroit, more or less. But you're also the most current to me in terms of uh, your DJing and what you play and what you make as music. I think you're very much in tune with, um, with, with you know, what's happening in Europe and the sound. But right, also, yeah. you're also down to earth like a young person as well. I don't, you know, obviously age is only uh, a number. And right. you can, I can really relate to what you're doing and even being your friend and having like, I don't know how, I'm, I'm 36, so we got about like 20 years or more difference. Okay, okay, man, we don't want to, we don't want to <laughs> make that big deal. <laughs> so what do you make of this and how, how what makes you uh, so in tune with, uh, with the current state of, of music? I don't know, having friends like you, you know, Yossi, the, you know, owner of Sushi Tech, you, Yossi, and, uh, you know, being in the game, being in the culture, because it's changed from what it was back when I first started, even in the golden era of this whole DJ culture thing, when it first started, you know, it just, it just wasn't like this, you know, and I like to think that I, uh, uh, e you know, evolved into what it is now. You could only do that through staying connected with it, you know, mm. having a, a deep connection with it and um, a connection with other DJs and watching their actions and producing and record shopping and reading and meeting people and traveling your travels and everything. I think it keeps you kind of grounded and connected to the culture. Would you say that when you got back to DJing and you started traveling, you ended up eventually being more inspired by the music that was coming from Europe rather than what was happening in the U.S.? <coughs> of course, because <coughs> that's where I was getting all of my uh, all of my work. You know, all of my gigs were coming from Europe, especially like in from 2009, I guess, 2010, you know, up until just recently. You know, I was getting all of my gigs here. And then <laughs> what's funny is that, you know, people find out, you know, through social media, you know, you're doing gigs overseas and people see that. That that actually blew me up again in Detroit, you know, because I wasn't getting bookings here mm. at all. You know, N nobody was. You know, you didn't use the same people, but no, nobody was really, you know, nobody really plays here like. Know, Derek and Carl and you know Kevin they you know they don't play here that much they you know mainly play in Europe and that I found that you know was happening to me too and I do find that yeah that that Europe you know and traveling probably uh they kept my interest and uh it kind of elevated my game uh so to speak you know what I'm saying because it's you know it's to me the industry is taken more serious over there than it is here It's just true, you know. It's like it's it's treated uh, with more respect. The music, you know, the artists, uh, it just treated with more respect than it is over here in the states. Yeah, it's funny how it all started in the U.S. You know, culturally speaking, house and techno. We know it comes from yeah. Chicago and Detroit, but you know, once it crossed to Europe, it became a thing of its own. You know, and and you know, like a virus that it exploded way more than in the US. Yeah, but that, I, I don't know, man. It's like uh, there, there's no support for it here. At least, you know, it's like, at least like in Europe, you can go to a hotel and you can go to restaurants and you can go to anywhere. You're, you're, and you can hear this music, you know, playing through the places PA. You know, you go to a fancy hotel and I hear like, dude, that's, that's a house track they're playing right there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's just, It's just intertwined in the culture in Europe more so than it is in the States, uh, the, the music. You know, Europe, they just took it and ran with it, man. And, you know, the States is such a such a messed up society here, such a racist society. Even, 
you know, even with disco and stuff like that, man, they just hated it so much, man. You know what I'm saying? Especially when they burned all the records in Chicago. I was pretty sure you know that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was purely racist yeah. to me. You know what I mean? The radio stopped playing shit, you know, stopped playing the music and everything. Man, it was purely racist. How old were you at the time? When that happened, I had to be about 18, I think, when that happened. Okay, so you're already DJing then. Yeah, so yeah, we were, we were already playing. But then like uh, 18 and 19, 20 is when kind of disco, like 81, 82 is when disco was kind of kind of fading out. And then, uh, you know, all the synth pop and the, we we called it progressive music. Yeah, you know. post-disco age. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, post-disco, yeah. You know, and, um, well, you know, we were playing that, but the, 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 the dis disco probably left, you know, 81, 82, you know, 83, and then, you know, the early house records uh, were 83, 84, 85. You know. The word progressive, that seems to be quite a Detroit thing. <coughs> I think it's totally a Detroit thing. Yeah, because I'd been hearing it around, uh, you know, from right. you or your friends and people right, from, yeah. that, from that time. But yeah, I realized yeah. it wasn't really common and used anywhere else. So yeah, yeah, it struck me. I don't know. What did they call it? What did they call post-disco uh, in Europe back then? <laughs> what, did they call, what did they call the music? Well, I don't think I can speak for the people from the 80s, but I think that generally in Europe, they, have, you know, they just have so many names for the stuff that happened in the, in the 80s, you know, like funk, disco funk. Boogie, modern soul, you know, like so many. Like, like the music of, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with John Roca. Uh, John Roca, no, maybe. Uh, John Roca, he he did the the the, uh, the 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 group called Freeze. Yeah, know? yeah, they're English, right? Yeah, they're from England. I thought that was yeah. See that kind of music. Now it's called what synth pop now or something like that or see I think it's synth pop. But see, back then, we would call stuff like that progressive. Okay. So. And I just wonder what you guys called it in Europe back then. Or I don't even, I think uh, back when that record was out and hot, you were probably a little young. Man. I know, but it's funny because um, I was, we were on this forum online. I was, I posted something and I called it Boogie. Uh, and you were like, funny how you, the names you guys give to some of the music. <laughs> oh, I remember that post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys called it Boogie. I'm like. Really? Yeah. Wow. Boogie funk and like you know, I like I was saying, like it, I think it's in England. All the names that you find, a lot of subgenres there, they they're probably like created in England by some journalists or something. They always need to box you, you know. Right. Exactly. Of course. <laughs> But going back to um, your sound and um, and what makes you um, relevant and current for me, I, I think it's if you think about Detroit. Like a lot of people have their own sound and everybody owns their own uh, identity. But I think that what you've been doing with the influence that you've been getting from uh, listening to imports and the music that wasn't created necessarily in Detroit or in America, but it was coming from Germany and all that, kind of gave you the, um, the ammunition to create something different and to be inspired a little bit like back in the days hearing imports from Germany and Kraftwerk and, and all the new wave influenced techno and influenced house. And somehow I feel like since you started producing a little bit later, the relationship you had with current music shaped your sound as well. You know, instead of just sounding like other Detroit producers, you know, you had your own, your own vibe. And I, I, my, my approach was probably different. I was introduced to producing a little bit differently than, You know, everybody else here was, you know, because everybody else, they, they actually started with machines, mm -hmm. you know, with straight up machines. I didn't start with a straight. Well, I did start with a machine, but I I went to software a bit quicker. Yeah. So I was able to utilize a lot of those tools, uh, you know, and software programs that you just can't do with analog equipment. And also, it was just my vision was different. You know, although I do use uh, 909, uh, you know, kicks, nats and stuff like that. It was just, I just thought that I used them just a little bit differently. Even now I'm starting to really kind of use, try to try to use it differently and try not to go just booch, booch, booch on every freaking track. You know, I wouldn't even consider my sound really Detroit techno because I, I didn't want to sound like that or Or, or try to seem like I was trying to sound like that. You know, I, I was just doing what was 
you know, in my head, man, you know? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your um, relationship with Sushi Tech. I feel like as soon as you start working with Sushi Tech, your career, you know, shifts and, and somehow those EPs and those albums, they really have a strong significance in, in your discography. And um, I know you're also really, really close to Yossi, the owner of Sushi Tech. Oh, that's one of my best friends, yeah. How would you say uh, Sushi Tech affected your sound? What was the, the, the role that it played? I played a, a major part in it, especially uh, with the, what a lot of the dub stuff I did. The three albums that we worked on, we, we did like three albums, what, uh, one, two, three, four, five EPs. You know, we I put a lot of work uh, into that label. And a lot of those tracks we did together. You know, I think my early work or a lot of my albums that really kind of shaped the sound of uh, of Sushi Tech and uh, Yossi's vision. You know what I mean? I kind of knew what he was getting at. You know, he gave me a little freedom to kind of be me in there too, but he wanted a specific sound and, um, you know, we were both working towards Go. And in that, I credit him and a lot of music that I produced on Sushi Tech, you know, with a lot of my success and notoriety. And I'm proud of the stuff we did too. You know, I, I like it. I still go back to it. And uh, also I learned a lot from him too, in terms of uh, music. Uh, especially when I first started going, you too. I, you know, I learned a lot from both of you guys. You know, when I first started going to Europe, I'm like, you were the first guys that brought me over here. Remember we did the June, man? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you asked me, what do you want to play? Where do you want to play here? I said, man, I'd like to play at the Zoo because I didn't know, you know, anything about the scene over there or in Paris or whatever. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it, it's the, I, you'd played before at the Rex during the Bidon tour. Uh, yeah, well, well, we were on that tour, but that was... That was different. I've only been to Europe one time prior to that gig that I did with Mike and Norm over there. And then when I met you that time, I think I'd been, when, you know, it was those times I was there with uh, Norm. Or then another time I played at Panorama Bar. It wasn't a tour. I just went over there for a one-off. But I really didn't start really going off, you know, really traveling frequently there until, yeah. what was that, 2010, 2009, something like that. Going back to uh, Yossi, and uh, you said you were working with him. Like, were you together in the studio or were you re working remotely? I seem like, were you making the music and he was giving you the ideas and things? Exactly, right. Yep, that's how we did it. We were working remotely mainly. With all three of the uh, albums, we worked uh, remotely mainly. But uh, it wasn't until the later productions when he started mixing them. I'd send him the stems and then he would mix them in his studio because... He had upgraded his studio significantly. <laughs> and uh, like the Lost Tapes album, I thought that album sounded, you know, sonically, it was superior to all the other things we did would be, you know, mixing, uh, you know, stuff uh, in my uh, in my uh, studio. Plus, he was more skilled at, you know, mixing and everything than I was. You know, you've been to my house, Sam. You know how limited I am here and what, I, what I'm working with, you know, so... I just thought the stuff would sound better. What well, was what the later stuff sounded better with him mixing it. But uh, do you ever trust him to mix projects for other things outside of Sushi Tech, or have you done that or not? Now I feel confident in my own. Thing, you know what I mean. And then, and then going back to you know the more you do this and everything, to how you evolve and how you grow, how you you know you've trained your ear to listen. You know what I mean. And, yeah. and that's what I've done. You know, I've the, I think I've trained my ear to kind of. You know, I know the nuances of my room now. You know, after each record, man, you get better. You see, you see what you could have did better. Yeah. You know, you correct it on the next one. You see what you could have did better on that. You correct it on the next one. You know, so it's a it's naturally, you know, you're gonna get better. Man. Yeah, it's something I like actually. The um, the whole because we're self-made and we're always learning how to produce, how to mix. It's never finished. I always feel like I can always do better for my next track. You know, I always feel like there's room to become better and deliver something right. better, and that's there's a bit of excitement in there because you think, okay, let me let me try to to maximize yeah. and try to, yeah, I love that. Even like but um, your stuff is sounding great now, though, man. I like that your album sounded great. Yeah, yeah, I never satisfied. I always think right. when when you start putting reference tracks, 
you know, um, for those who listen, using reference track is when you use someone else's track in your project and right. you, you A, B them to hear how far off you are. And sometimes if you don't use them, right. you might think you're good and suddenly you're like, whoa, my track needs so much more highs. And um, Right. Do you reference tracks when you do? Uh, when you make yes, them? I do. And, uh, and I reference them in, in terms of uh, like uh, uh, clarity. Yeah. You know, you, you know what I mean? And the space in it. Like a lot of my earlier stuff, man, it was just everything to me sound, you know, if I listen to it now, it's like, wow, that really sounds muffled. You know what mm. I mean? It really sounds like, you know, you didn't know what you were doing, really. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like now, now it's more open. It's more, you know, now I know what to add, you know, how, how to work, uh, compression, saturation, all that to bring out different elements and a sound, you know, and to make it you know, full, yeah. you know what I mean? And, that, and that's what, and that's what uh, I felt a lot of my earlier uh, works lacked was the fullness, you know mm. what I'm saying? People probably liked it because it's raw, you know what I'm saying? You know, you, you like the old dirty raw stuff. You know, mm. we all like that stuff, you know, back in the day. But I think now, I think, you know, people's ears are more refined now, mm. you know what I mean? And Yeah, man, definitely. So tell me, <laughs> Um, from what I've understood, after you stopped DJing in the 80s, you had a break between 86 and 92, uh, right? Yeah. Yep. I stopped uh, from about 86 to 92, 93, something like that. Yeah. So from 93 to 98, are you just casually DJing or? I was casually, yeah, I was casually DJing. I was casually getting back into it. Uh, and, and, and in that, I was doing gigs that, I just wouldn't even, I'm embarrassed to say I, I did, you know, coming back because I couldn't get a gig in Detroit. I, you know, everybody thought I was, you know, just gone and washed up. I got, you know, I did work at this one club, though, but we, you know, we played uh, this club called Network mm -hmm. and they let me play. But it was mainly, you know, it was, I was there to play old school and then hip hop, you know, R&B and stuff like that. I was. I was playing that, dude. Uh, this is how we do it, <laughs> like that, man. But then I think they really hired me to, to you know, to play the old school stuff because a lot of the old uh, black crowd, a lot of the old heads still knew me and everything. And you know, I was, you know, I was playing the same old shit we was rolling back in seventy nine, eighty, eighty one, and eighty two. You know, same old tracks we rolling them. 20, 30 years later, and people act like you know you reinvented the wheel playing this old shit. <laughs> Were they branded as classics nights or progressive? Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're cla a lot of those are you know like Detroit classics, you know, you know. But I, I noticed each town, like in Chicago, they play different disco than we did in Detroit. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Listen to a lot of the uh, Chicago guys' streams and their mixtapes over the years and everything. It's like They were just brought up different. We were we came up in the school of Ken Kyer. They came up in the school of like uh, uh, Ron Hardy. You know what I mean? And it's a lot different. You know, they, they were two completely different DJs. We played a lot of the stuff the kid played, and he introduced us to. And I'm pretty sure in Chicago they they played a lot of stuff that that Ron introduced them to. Mm. At any rate, when I came back, I was playing uh, you know weddings, bro. I even had a I bought a, a mobile sound system, man. I was setting up speakers and stuff. Wow. Yeah, and uh, this this is my comeback, my triumphant comeback. <laughs> and I'm uh, playing uh, weddings and, you know, uh, handing the mic over to the best man. Here, you want to say something, man? Uh, you know, it's just, yeah, it was horrible. But yeah, you, you build on that ground, though, you know, you grew from there, I feel. Right. Yeah. I, you know, getting back in, I, I just wanted to be close to it. And I, you know, and during this time, I was still buying records, you know what I'm saying? But it wasn't until really uh, when we started, I think uh, when we did the first beatdown compilation, I started producing. My friend TJ let me use his uh, Yamaha RM1X. It's basically a groove box. And I started tinkering around on that. And I was going by Norm's house from time to time. And he let me see how he was producing and stuff like that. But then when Guy McCreary uh, hit up Eddie Folks to do the uh, Detroit Beatdown compilation, that was the official 
comeback there because uh, you know I never put out. Well, I put out a track on uh, Reggie Doak's uh, Psychostasia label. Yes, that was actually my first record that uh, Reggie put that out, and then I put out the Metropolis on the Detroit Beatdown compilation. Then after that, I did uh, a mix mode release. And I think that mixed mode release got me my first overseas gig, which was actually at Panorama Bar. And I was horrible, dude. I was over there playing playing soulful shit. And Panorama Bar wasn't cut like that at all. You know what I'm saying? But that's another story. But uh, How did it go down? How was the night? I think uh, it's, it kind of sucked. Uh, it kind of sucked. I, I didn't really make an impact at all, I don't think. Okay. Because I had never been to Europe, man. I, I didn't know the vibe. There was no social media. I had nothing to gauge it. I didn't know nobody that played over there. Yeah. I had nothing to gauge nothing. And it wasn't until I really met you and Yossi, mainly Yossi started asking me, do you play this? Do you play that? Do you play this? I'm like, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, then he started telling me how to play in these clubs in Europe. After that, I tailored my whole, I switched, although I was, Producing Deep House, my earlier production was Deep House, I had to change my DJ mind, my DJ set, my whole approach to DJing. Once I came back and I knew I was going to, and I was traveling to Europe these couple of times, I'm like, dude, I'm not. Because listen to the guys before you and after you, it's like, bro, I'm nothing like this. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Did you like what you hear from the other DJs? That's what I say. I loved it. Mm. I, I loved it. You know, I, I, I loved it. It was like, but, but I wasn't even really going out in Detroit. I'd go out to hear Huck, rest in peace, and um, and Norm. Those are the only two DJs I really kind of like, okay, now, this is what I want to sound like. But I really didn't fully grasp it until a couple of times I went over to Europe and I came back. I'm like, okay, I need to be here. And then Yossi is drilling it in my head. I'm like, I think I need to be here. And then I just started just tailoring my whole persona, my whole DJ tracks, everything towards this sound. You know what I mean? And uh, here we are. I wonder how you felt. Like, obviously, there was a lot of demand in Europe for what you were doing. But although you had your experience with being a DJ in the 80s, like suddenly what you were doing now wasn't really going to work in Europe. I, it wasn't going to work. What I was doing here would not work in Europe. No way. I, mm. I had to come out and, you know, in a way represent, you know, Detroit. I had to come out swinging in a way that I had to just put more energy into my DJ sets, man, you know. And a lot of stuff, a lot of your old stuff and everything, a lot of vocal stuff, because I was, you know, playing a lot of vocal Louis Vega and a lot of Chill Dog Glenn Underground. You know what I'm saying? I was, I really wasn't really going, you know, head on. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you hear Derek and Carl, you know, it's like, dude, they banging techno, rocking the party. I wanted to do that more so than, although I, I like all music, bro. You know, I like I like the soft stuff. I like the hard stuff, but I knew where I wanted to be in this yeah. game, and I knew, uh, you know, I knew I wasn't going to get a lot of soulful gigs because only a few guys get 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 those. But uh, on a techno tip, and uh, being where I'm from, stuff like that, I thought the association uh, of it. But, but not saying that all guys from Detroit play tech like Booty Man. He's very very soulful. Rick is soulful. Theo's very, very soulful. But then you got the hard guys too. And I kind of wanted to be kind of in the middle of that. But, you know, still staying true to myself. Would you say that you got more into techno over the years? Like, obviously, you started with disco and progressive, and but you were not really DJing in the in the in the mid '80s and, and all that. You never really used to play techno. No, I wasn't, and I wasn't even like <clears throat> in the early '90s uh, and the mid '80s. I wasn't hanging out in Detroit either, so I was totally disconnected from your music. So when techno first really hit, dude, I was—I had a job, an apartment. I didn't go to clubs. I, you know, I didn't go to the music institute. You didn't? No, I went there probably once or twice. Okay, so I was totally disconnected from the music, and you know, this is the first time I'm telling anyone this. You know, I think I mentioned it one time in one of my bios somewhere, but uh, yeah, I never really. I, I didn't. I didn't hang out at any other places. And I, and I regret that I took this hiatus 
because I've missed a lot of music. I've missed a whole lot of music. Mm. Uh, and I missed uh, an era, man, in which I think if I would have stayed connected to it, then with the same passion and drive I have now, you know, I think I would be even further along than I am. Mm. You know what I mean? If I would have stuck with it during those crucial years, the second or third wave of it, if you will, if I would have stuck hunkered down then, I think I would have probably, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been the new kid coming in, you know, after the fact, you know, uh, in the 2000s, you know, it's like, well, he's been around a long time, but, you know, he just started doing techno, you know what I'm saying? So, that said, the fact that you started later gave you an edge that not everybody knew you were, you know, right. the age of Jeff or you were, you know, the right. generation before the others. You know what I mean? So right. yeah, that exactly. gave you like, uh, you know, uh, an edge, I think. And, and, and you wouldn't have been who you are now anyway. I like the Delano that we have. Right. And, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but what was your feeling in the, in the 80s when you took a break and house was getting more uh, defined and techno as well? What did you think about that sound that was more electronic? Oh, I loved it, man. I loved all that stuff. I, you know, I had some friends that DJ used to listen to, you know, mixtapes, uh, cassette tapes, uh, guys, and a lot of that stuff on tracks, DJ International, all the Chicago labels. Man, that music was slamming. I loved it. But uh, I didn't like it enough to uh, sacrifice what I was doing in life to start going back to DJ because I knew what that DJ game was in Detroit. It was like buying a lot of records and the promoters in Detroit not wanting to pay you. Mm. It's like, fuck that. I got a job, got an apartment, got a car. I was single, I was young. Man, dude, I was I was living life, man. And I had to pay bills. You know what I'm saying? I had to pay bills and stuff like that. So Yeah, man, totally. Also, you'd been there, done that. You know, you knew how the game was working and stuff. But also, yeah, you couldn't have foreseen that Detroit would have become such a force that would influence the world. No, nobody saw that, man. Nobody saw that. Nobody saw this coming, man, until, you know, I think what really blew it up is, you know, internet. The internet really just 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 blew this up, and then and then their consistency too, what they were doing, Eddie and uh, Derek and yeah. and Juan, you know, just consistently putting out this sound, and no one else was really doing it. They were calling it techno, you know, no one else was doing it. And I think that uh, kind of propelled them and the city to what it is now. People look at somebody from you know, you look at a record from a guy from Cleveland, then you look at a record from a guy from Detroit. Which one do you think the guy is going to the shop and he's going to play first? He's going to play the Detroit record, <laughs> no matter who the guy is. You know, oh, this is from Detroit. Let's check this out. Tell me a little bit more about the Music Institute. I know you didn't go there many uh, times, like you say, but as you know, we have a friend in common, Shay. Yeah, and, no, you know, right. he was one of the founders, and uh, I'd like to know how uh, it impacted you. Know uh, those few times that you went there. What do you remember of it? Yeah, I was there uh, one night when Derek was playing. It was amazing. But during this time, I'm not saying I didn't go to clubs at all. I did, like, because I went to heaven a couple of times, too. Okay. When Ken uh, was, uh, had his club heaven. But the Music Institute, it, it was great. Totally different from what Detroit was doing back when, you know, when I was playing. And then white people were there. You know what I mean? And that was different in Detroit. I think that started the whole thing. It was mostly black. But I think that was started the trend there for a lot of white folks uh, in Detroit, because with this music, you know, we didn't see, you know, with, with disco and stuff. But it was a black thing, man. It was you didn't see white people at the gigs until Music Institute and then subsequently the, 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 the underground parties after that, that Huck and Norm used to play a lot of stuff at this place called Johansson Gallery. That was another underground place. Kevin Hansen uh, on that. It was uh, it was great. It was a couple of uh, kind of underground places after the institute closed that people would give parties at and everything, and then they kept the culture going. But this was the but the institute was the first time I started seeing white people at underground parties where they played you know progressive music. Yeah, I think that was actually you know part of the vision of the Music Institute to bring more diversity to, to bring something new to Detroit. And, exactly, but uh, I, I, it was amazing, man. Uh, Derek was uh, Derek was amazing because coming up, 
you know, you know, I don't think Derek was a really good DJ back when he started. You know, none of us really good, but I remember he used to come to a lot of clubs I played at, mainly this one called Luumo, the pub and stuff like that. And uh, he wasn't even really DJing then. But then when I heard him at the music institute that time, I'm like, oh, somebody's been practicing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, the sound was amazing, man. I noticed he was doing crazy stuff with the EQ and everything. And music was completely different. He's playing, you know, some tracks that I just never heard. Just uh, I was like, dude, I'm totally behind. You know what I'm saying? And I think that that's another thing that kind of kept me away from it. Like, dude, I I can't catch up now if I wanted to. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But I thought that the Music Institute was amazing, bro. Were you still buying records at the time? Or when you stopped, you completely stopped? I completely stopped, man. I still had my, you know, some of my records at my mom's house, but uh, I, I just completely stopped. For some reason, I never got rid of them. I did get rid of a lot of them, though. I did. I let a friend borrow some like two or three crates full of some jams too and this guy moved to la or something back this was back in the 80s guy moved to la and i just never saw him or the records again yeah, that sucks um going back to 91 92 when you get back to your djing like what kind of house were you listening to at the time what was it that influenced you were you like into the detroit sound or anything like that oh uh, yeah i was yeah, of course yeah i was into uh, detroit chicago but that's all i really kind of do and uh you know a lot of u.s based stuff other than a few imports that i that i saw from here and there but it was mainly music from like carrie chandler you know yeah a lot of the the, the older masters at work stuff uh you know i like I, i still like that stuff yeah you know did you used to travel at the time did you go to new york to some parties or anything like that uh back then no i never went to The garage, never saw Larry the band, nothing like that. I heard in an interview that you actually used to go to Chicago just to record WBMX. Yeah, we did that. We used to take boomboxes to Chicago just to record mixes off the radio. Yeah, the Hot Mix 5, right? Yeah, exactly, man. That shit was slamming. But then they started to play the same thing every week. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> Sometimes I like, that seemed like I heard that mix before. You know what I mean? You know, but it, was, it was only so many records out there, too, so... It was a matter of them, how they edited them. You know, they just started editing them differently, you know, and everything. But but Bad Boy Bill was a beast back in that day, man. Woo. Did these big Chicago DJs come to play in Detroit? I, they probably did, but, you know, back then, uh, you know, then I, then I moved away from Detroit for about four years, too. So uh, they probably did, but I don't know. I went to, I went to school in Kalamazoo. I needed to, you know... Get some education under my belt, man, you know? I guess at the time you couldn't think that DJing could possibly, you know, be making real money. With your experience of getting low fees in Detroit and the hustle, you know, I don't think you would have considered it something serious. I couldn't fathom it, man. I couldn't fathom it until it actually happened. You know what I mean? Until I actually uh, decided to leave corporate America and be an artist, you know, and start looking at it. From that perspective, I don't see myself as a DJ. I love to DJ, you know, I, that's what I do, but I don't see myself as just a DJ. Mm. I think that's, uh, there should be another name for us or something, man, especially if you write your own music and people buy it and you have become popular and you're able to make a living solely because of the music you create. You know, and something that you and I both have been blessed and fortunate enough to do. You know, people all over the world know you, respect you, like, love you. You know what I'm saying? They buy your records with their hard-earned money, man. Yeah, you know, yeah that's amazing. You know, that, that's, that's amazing, man. You know? Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I'm thankful for that every day. People that even people share your track and their playlist i played this in my in my in my, in my mix today check it out you know yeah people that don't even know you now they're seeing this you know what i'm saying now they know you too because now who is this delano smith guy who is his brother guy you know let's click on some of his tracks let's go google him and boom whole wealth of information about your whole career all your tracks discography everything boom huh. at their disposal it's just completely different now It is. It's amazing, actually. Yeah. And personally, I wouldn't say I've grown up with um, piracy, um, but when I was 14 or, or 15, that's when it was the beginning of Napster and right. um, Live Wire, I think it was called, something like that. The beginning of peer-to-peer, basically. Yeah. 
And as I grew up, I kind of decided that I wasn't going to win the piracy battle. That, you know, that was a lost game, a lost cause. You know, instead of fighting, you know, for some size to, to take me off, you know, actually I was thinking more as in like, if they're sharing my music, there's more people who might know about it. They might not be in a position to buy it. When they grow up, maybe they'll spend right. real money, you know, if I come to their town or something like that. Exactly, right. And uh, I really like this quote from Seth Godin. He's like a writer uh, who's quite known in the marketing world. And he says that people should not be afraid of piracy, but rather be afraid of obscurity. And I think that's quite deep, you know, like instead of yeah, fighting deep. for like yeah. some some websites that are pirating, yeah. you should be afraid of not being pirated. You know, somebody who's pirated a lot means that he's popular. So if no one hears about you, that's more the problem. That's the obscurity. So anyway, I just wanted to talk about like, right. that idea as well. You know, man, um, I don't think, you know, in our relationship, I've never really spoken to you about like the the olden days and things like that. And, and as I was um, listening... I, we, I don't think we never... No. We never never talked about that. No, we did. No. I know. <laughs> we never I, talk about Right, yeah. But as I was listening to some interviews and stuff, I just thought how exciting these years must have been, especially since you were so young, you know? Like, you're still in high school and you're doing parties for your peers, you're hiring sound system. Like, that's great, because obviously at the time, there were some DJs and some discotheques and whatever, but I almost feel like the youngins created something of their own like a, a different kind of culture or something it must have been so exciting to be so young and doing something so cool you know i think what we were doing uh sammy was very cool man because but really what really drove it though was the music the music was was different because we came up listening to r&b and everything but when that disco hit it was just something about it bro Mm. It was just something about it that, that that made you dance different and everything, made you dance faster or whatever. And people just started putting these parties together, and uh, we saw it happening, and we wanted to do it too. But these guys were, like, probably back then, 21, 22, and uh, they're throwing these big parties. You know, they're out of high school, but these, and these were the organizations that were hiring DJs like, Kid Kyer and Dale Willis and Stacey L. You know, those were the big name DJs in Detroit back in 79, you know, 78, 79, 80. You know, I've been high school, 10th, 11th, 12th grade then. And, you know, we started forming our own social organizations and hiring Ken Kyer and everything. And then we, we saw what he was doing. It's like, hey, we, we could start DJing ourselves. You know what I mean? Then we stopped bringing in the big guys and we started just DJing ourselves, you know? And that's what really started this whole thing. Only one or two people had turntables and a mixer at their house and we just all go, whoever had the turntables and the mixer at their house. Were you like the the little brothers and those were like the older brothers or somehow? did Could you go to their parties? Did you manage to get in or? Yeah, yeah, you managed to get in. Yeah, we could get in because okay. they weren't held at clubs so to speak, where there was a uh, age thing, a 21 age. They were held at places like hall rental places, like a building, a, a person would rent out a space. You could pay to go in. There was no, you know, you'd have to show any ID to show, prove how old you were. It wasn't at a club where there was a bar or, you know, something where it required you to be 18 or 21 to get in, you know. These were at uh, just local halls that people rented. Right. Were they fully licensed or was there something a bit, you know, homemade DIY about it as well? Well, I think they probably back then they probably had a uh, uh, probably a dance permit, maybe in order for the club to, you know, to allow people to, to dance. And it probably was something. But, you know, none of those places ever got shut down. Yeah. They didn't know they were like underage people. And of course. Yeah. Yeah. They, but there was a they, I think a lot of the club owners and everything knew that there was a culture in dance parties in Detroit. Yeah. Like the very first dance parties I started going to was at a place called Plymouth Church. And it was in a basement of a church. And uh, that's when people were playing disco, Michael Jackson. Wow. Uh, we used to dance there like crazy. That's when DJs didn't mix, you know. They were sitting down when they were playing. Was that church like some kind of defunct building or was it functional it was a functioning church, functioning the church, church. Is still open to the, yeah 
the church is still open to this day. And the parties were from like 8 to 12 or 8 to 11, something like that. That's so mad because, you know, if you think of the music yeah. of the time and like the lyrics and yeah. the message that he was conveying, it's not really in line with the message from the church. Exactly. Yeah, but they played everything. <laughs> but mostly, mostly disco. This yeah. was 78. You know, bro, we, we were, dude, it's the music, you know, that I, we came up on. And then to naturally did, and that's a junior high or, and then, or early high school, did to naturally evolve to, you know, see how the music evolved and you're hearing different DJs and how different promoters marketed their events and everything, how it actually grew here in Detroit was a friend of mine is writing a book on this. His name is Todd Johnson. He's writing a book on this. It was fascinating the way it evolved, bro. And this guy, Todd Johnson, he was in it at every step. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he was part of it. He was part of the first DJs in Detroit. You know, part, I mean, you know, the very first mobile DJs. This is 76, bro. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, you weren't even born. You know what I mean? Wasn't he uh, running a direct drive? His, he later on created direct drive. Right. But his first uh, DJ uh, company was called Eclipse. Okay. Yep. And they used to play at the place, this place called the Shintiki. Uh, a lot of the earlier parties that we all went to, man, Eclipse were the DJs. There was three of them. There was actually Eclipse, Essence Sound Company. Uh, Duncan Sound, and then there was True Disco, which was Ken Collier. Okay. Oh, and there was uh, Dit Lake and Hicks, which was Charles Hicks and this uh, and this other guy. But uh, yeah, there was some there was some DJ crews back in the day, man. I mean, way before me, uh, way before another guy, another really popular guy here. His name was Daryl Shannon. He was actually he started actually before me. It was real good. Because I'm hearing that there there in another interview you're saying that things were a little competitive uh, amongst DJs at the time or um, not necessarily in, you know, physically or anything, but more, you know, the, in terms of game and, and skills and... and uh, yeah, that too, but it, but it was, uh, it was, it was competitive in, in, in forms of uh, disrespect too, in a way, you know, especially, especially towards me, you know, by some DJ crews, you know, I was, uh, you know, you know, disrespected a lot, I think, because... Uh, I probably had some potential, you know? Yeah. And, you know, people being, you know, yeah, I do what you do with your kids. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's interesting because I was, uh, there's a really interesting quote from Hassan Nurullah. Uh-huh. And he's saying, the only competition Direct Drive had on any level was Soundwave, Carl Martin, and later Delano Smith. Delano right. was the only real challenger to Daryl Shannon's throne because not only could he play, but the girls thought he was cute too. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I guess that. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. 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 Guy. Wow. Wow. Where you get that from? Uh, yeah. That sounds like. I think I remember Hassan writing that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. There was like a long thread on a blog post that okay. um, Juan Atkins wrote, <laughs> and a lot of people from Detroit from that time commented and just reading those comments there's just yeah, a yeah. lot of information i remember just when preparing to call you out i needed to get back to it you know but that's interesting as well because you know at that time you were so young and you know yeah. with the popularity and i guess it must have been quite a lot you know to handle that and the girls and partying and i don't think you were approaching it as something like professional like a career you're probably having more fun and all that Man, when you're, when you're, yeah, yeah, but when you're 18 and everything, you get that attention, man. You get that kind of attention. You you know, you're young and immature, man. You do stupid stuff. I did a lot of stupid stuff, man. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, I play with, a, you know, people's mind and emotions and not thinking only of myself and, you know, my nice dance. You know how it is. It, it was horrible. I was horrible at some time. It was, it was horrible. Yeah, it must be easy, man, for anything like this to go up your head, you know, when you're that young. And then when, when so many people are telling you, oh, you're this, you're that, and you're this and that, you know, you're that young, and, you know, it's going to change your personality, man. You're going to think that. Yeah, definitely, man. I don't think anyone's ready at that age, you know? You might think you're grown up, but really, the, the reality is a, is a lot different. You don't have the experience, you know, it's very easy to behave right. like an idiot. Yeah. But let me know a little bit about how you got to know Ken Collier. 
from what I understand, Ken Kelly actually had his own radio show, right? Yeah, yeah. Were you listening to him on the radio before you saw him DJ first? Yeah, okay. we all did. I heard him on the radio first, and then I saw him at uh, one of the first kind of older people party I went to back when I was like in the ninth or ninth grade. I think it was like, yeah, I was in ninth grade. And this social organization, I gave a party. They had Kate Collier play. It was the first time I saw someone mixing two records together. And then saw a DJ play the way he did. You know, all the DJs sat down while they played. You know, he was standing up and mixing and dancing while he was playing. I'm like, I'm going to do that. I, I, I knew immediately I want to I want to DJ like that. Mm. I want I want to I want to be him. You know, you know. I just I want to be I I want to be him. It's amazing yeah, to I have such that. a certitude sometimes about, you know, you have an epiphany, yeah. let's say with like a moment and you think somehow something is triggered in you and you think I really right. want to do that. Yeah. That's beautiful. And and so what from that moment on you Yeah, like, yeah, from that moment on we started following Following him, mm. following the music. Every time we see a flyer with uh had a good a running buddy, a friend of mine named Sean. I used to we used to hang out every weekend going to these parties. Every time we saw Kate Collier play, we would go. And even uh and we see my wife at those parties back, my wife that I'm married to now, you know. We used to we used to hang out with her back in the day. Special shout out to the beautiful Shirley. Yeah, exactly. Going to progressive parties wherever Kate Collier was playing. Uh, we go see Stacy too, Stacy Hill, but for the most part, we go see Ken. And of course, at the time, there was no guest list or anything like that, right? Oh, no, there was no guest list. What do you mean? What was the guest list? It's five dollars to get in. Yeah. And that was a lot of money back then. You know, five dollars. Then sometimes the gig was seven dollars. And it was, when it was seven dollars, it's like, Oh, it's usually at a really fancy place when it was $7. Like at this place called the Body Book Country Club. And all it was was a, the Body Brook Country Club was a golf course. They had this room that they would let teenagers run out to get parties. That's all. And then people used to really get dressed up to go to this place. <laughs> and uh, they charged $7 to get in. And Ken was a DJ. And then that Luomo started giving parties at the Bonnie Brook until Luomo opened up their own club. Now they was giving parties at the Bonnie Brook, and then they went to Studio 54, the Detroit Studio 54, and then they opened up their own club. Yeah. So Ken used to see you like in front of the booth or what? All the time. Yeah. 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 That's I did. Then we started hiring the little social organization I was with. We started hiring him. What was the name of that organization? Uh, I was with one called Courtier and one called The Next Phase. And The Next Phase started hiring him first. Now, my friend Avon McDaniel, uh, you know, he had many organizations, but this was probably his biggest one out of Detroit. It's called The Next Phase. And it was like guys from all different high schools in Detroit that he gave really, really big parties. And uh, he would hire Ken. And then we started opening for Ken. You know, we called ourselves Soundwave, and uh, we would start uh, opening for Ken until he got there. So you had Soundwave, but didn't you go with Direct Drive for a moment? Uh, briefly, yeah. Briefly, briefly, okay. But yeah, but Direct Drive would really, you know, we, we were kind of at odds mm. through a lot of that time, you know what I'm saying, until later on, you know, we, we kind of you know, made amends, I guess. And, and I joined them briefly. I did a few parties under the moniker, but uh, I think that is all. Yeah, because it seems like a lot of DJs have played under the Direct Drive banner at one point or another. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. But Direct Drive was really only Daryl Shannon and Todd Johnson. Mm -hmm. You know, that was their thing. They're the ones that made the money from it and everything. And everyone else just played under it. You know what I'm saying? And they was just, they partnered Direct Drive, but the real Direct Drive was just Daryl Shannon, Mike Brown, and uh, Ty Johnson. That was it. I love how you sometimes use events from your past to title some of your music. For example, didn't you do a, a track called Direct Drive? Yeah, I did a track called Direct Drive, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I'm just thinking about this early uh, company, The Next Phase. That would be a really dope name for a track or a project. Exactly. Next phase. Oh, that's a good idea. 
That is a very good idea. Uh, huh. Is there a recording from your early years, like from the 80s? What's the earliest recording that you know of? A friend of mine just said that he found some old cassettes of mine. My friend Christian Hill that does a lot of, uh, he does, he, he's put out the new uh, guy saying give him drum machines. That I don't know if you saw, you've been seeing the clips or advertisement for this movie he's putting out okay. about the history of Detroit and how it started and everything. But anyway, okay. he has some old cassette tapes of mine. He texted me. Few days ago, actually, said he had some old cassette tapes. Uh, I told him, uh, I don't even want to hear it. <laughs> Probably horrible, bro. <laughs> uh, that is from like the 80s, right? Yeah, from the 80s, yeah. And uh, I used to like do, I, and like now, I hate those songs. I don't hate them, but I just, you know, I just don't want to be remembered for that. And that time was cool. Those tracks was cool and everything, man. But I just, I've just been, we've been there. We've done that to death here in Detroit. And every time I hear somebody play one of those old records, it's like, bro, no, there's so much more out here. I can understand living yesteryear, but Jesus Christ. Yeah, but for the outside world, it's still fresh. Yeah, yeah, for the outside world, it's probably, oh, wow, yeah, yeah. You're lucky. You know, imagine you started with, uh, you know, really bad trance or something really, like, cheap. At least with the progressive, it's still good music, you know? Yeah, it is. I agree. No, you heard it a lot, but, you know, in terms of quality, yeah. it's real music. Right, exactly, right, yeah. Real, you're, you're absolutely right, real real music, yeah. Yep, arranged like music, supposed to be... And sounding like music supposed to sound, you're absolutely right. Use real musicians and everything back then. Yeah. But I'm tired of it. <laughs> and this is the end of my conversation with my dear friend, Delana Smith, real living legend, all-round gentleman. And it was so much fun talking to him and learning about all that. I hope you enjoyed it too. Uh, I'm inviting you to tune in to the next episode. And if any of you is interested to listen to the bonus episode that I did with Delano, that is available for all my patrons, everybody who follows me on Patreon, and that is www.patreon.com slash brother. You can have access to those bonus episodes that I do month in and out, as well as exclusive DJ mixes that are only available over there and a bunch of other things. Thanks. Have an amazing day. Peace out. Thank you.